Welcome to the podcast of Living Water Bible Fellowship. We are a church in Alamosa, Colorado, and here you can find our sermons and other occasional teachings. We hope and pray that this podcast encourages you in your walk with Jesus and increases your understanding of God's Word and the Gospel. Through Jesus, anyone can have new life, can have freedom, and can have ultimate salvation. Stick around to the end of this podcast to learn more about what the gospel is and how to be saved. And now, on to our teaching. Around the world, people are suffering. And oftentimes, people suffer because of people. You can probably tick off one by one the things you saw in the news this week of people doing evil against people, hurting people greedy, selfish ways of living that took from people caused people to suffer. Maybe you've suffered. Maybe you've done, uh, been done wrong by somebody even this week. What's God's response to evil? Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Continue our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. What's God going to do about evil? How's God going to handle evil in his world? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there's a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the, the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? God bless the reading of his holy word. John's vision comes to the moment of the fifth seal being opened. Last week we looked at the first four seals, uh, the, 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 the picture that John has given of what happens in heaven when the will of God is being unfolded. The judgments of God, the, the wrath of God in some sense is coming. The forces of evil turn, turn loose against the forces of evil. Wars, civil wars, famines, death. The fifth seal is a shift. It's a change. It's a, it's a change of perspective. The scenery has changed from what's happening on the earth 
to what's now taking place in heaven. John says that he saw souls. Ask me how someone can see a soul. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a clue. How do you see a soul? But again, every part of this vision, the whole book of vision, it's revelation, it's the apocalypse, it's the unveiling of reality that God, through Jesus, through the angel, gives to John. And he's able to see things. And how does he know their souls? How do they, how does, we, we don't know. But he reports, he witnesses to us, he brings back what he saw. He saw souls, dead, people who had been killed. Who are these souls? There's many visions of, of uh, understandings of these visions of who these people are and where they came from. Uh, some would say these are the, the, the martyrs of the church from the first century. Since Jesus came, the people who have lived for Christ, who have witnessed for Christ, who have faithfully followed Christ, they've been slaughtered from the first century on. Thousands there, thousands there, thousands there, thousands there through the different decades, through the first two millennia. We've seen lots of bloodshed. Uh, some would say that this is a future vision of those who are yet to die for Jesus Christ. Uh, there's different understandings, different, as we talked about last week, as the long, long sermon went on, I explained the different uh, kind of understandings of the future or the understandings of the past, or how this has been interpreted. Some would say these are the tribulation saints, the great tribulation, that before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a seven-year period, and, and maybe the first three and a half years are going to be filled with martyrs. Uh, these are perhaps, maybe they're, they're Jewish martyrs, Jewish people who've come to Christ to worship Him, to follow Him, and they are killed. And now they're seen in heaven as the souls who have died for Jesus Christ. Whether you take that view or that view or some other views, we see here that there's been people who have been faithful. Faithful to Jesus. To the very end. They've lived their life to the very end. They have overcome. They've kept the faith to the end. They died in Jesus. And they're with God. The terminology, the, the picture is, is strange to us. Souls under the altar. What's that mean? What's that entail? It's an uh, allusion to the Old Testament. It's, uh, if, you, if you've studied the Jewish form of worship at the temple or before that, the tabernacle, there's a couple altars in God's holy furniture, as it were, God's, God's temple courts. Out in the, out in the courtyard, there was the altar of burnt offering. This is the place where people, would, after the sacrifice has been brought to the priest, the priest has slaughtered the animal, they've uh, carved up the animal, they've, they've dissected the animal to the different parts. Some of the pieces of the animal are placed on the altar as an offering to God. Sometimes the blood is dealt with, and you can read in the Old Testament some of the, the, the law, the, the regulations about the use of blood. Certain offerings, certain sacrifices, the blood was taken, and it was actually poured under the altar of the burnt offering. 
Uh, some would say that the way that this is described here is that Christians have become sacrifices to God. In their faithfulness to God and their picking up their cross and following Him, giving their life away, they are, as it were, living sacrifices and now become dead sacrifices. Their blood being poured out, as it were, under the altar. There's another altar in the holy place of the temple or the tabernacle, the, al the altar of incense. Uh, there, most of the time, that, that altar was not approached by common people or, or in the courtyard. Of course, the, the priest could go in there. On the Day of Atonement, sometimes, the, every, every time, the, the priest would take blood in there and they'd put it on the horns of the altar. But the altar of in incense was a symbol of the prayers of the saints as they lit the, the incense. The, the smoke would go up and it was a picture of the prayers of the people going before God. And so here we have the prayers of the the dead, prayers of the murdered, prayers of the martyrs going before God. So there's, there's a wrestling match, it seems, in, in theology in, in people's minds. It's the altar of burnt incense, and it's the, it's the altar of uh, burnt offerings. <laughs> there's one altar in the book of Revelation, so it encompasses both. In the symbolism, the picture that, that John is given, again, every, everything that comes to John's mind, he's not a passive, he's not a... And that's someone who's discerning what to see and what not. God is giving him the vision. God is giving him the pictures, the symbols. They are in God's holy court, as it were. They're in the temple of God, the dead. They are safe. They're secure. They are with God. But the pictures, the symbol, it can be both and, and all. The dead are with their Lord and they're worshiping him. They're given white robes. Now, you asked me, and now I'm not going to make you do it again. How do souls wear robes? <laughs> I don't know. But again, this is, this is a vision. It's, it's a visionary picture of, of uh, the symbolism as white robes, the picture of salvation. These people are the people that have overcome. These are the people that have uh, walked in life and faithfulness. They've been tried. They've been tempted, they've been persecuted, they've suffered, they died in the faith. And so the pictures of people wearing white robes are those who are justified, been declared righteous by God, accepted by God. They've been vindicated, as it were. You are not. They, they put you to death because they said you were evil. They put you to death because they said you were living wrong, that you weren't worshiping the right gods. And so the pictures of getting robes is a symbol of vindication, of justice, of that you have been accepted by God. You didn't do anything wrong in terms of your walk with me. Uh, we, we see these people, these souls, these, 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 uh, these saints. Under the altar and, and they're with God. And uh, it's an amazing thing. But it makes us think about our death. Uh, let alone the question of justice and the, the question of what is God going to do with evil. Uh, it makes us think about our death. What, what happens when we die? Uh, there's uh, many sermons that could be talked about here. Uh, but Philippians chapter 1, if you look there with me, verse 21. What happens when we die? A succinct answer, a short answer is, is found here. As Christians, the Apostle Paul in Philippians is talking about his imminent death, his possible death. He's in jail, and he thinks he might be executed for the faith. And so he's reflecting on that and pondering that, and he says in verse 21, For to me, for, for to, me to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. As he's going on living in the flesh, he's serving in ministry. That's what, how he sees life, is serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. But to die is gain. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? If I am to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet which, uh, which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And as he goes on, he says, uh, but I, I, I bet I'm going to stay here because God wants me to serve you, minister to you. But, but did you hear that? To, to die is to be with Christ. To die is far better in the sense of you're going to be with Jesus. It's a very, very tight, very succinct summary. Uh, sometimes we as Christians, unfortunately and wrongly, and I, I think um, we're going to be just frustrated with ourselves one day in heaven, like, we're like, oh, I'm afraid of death, or man, death, I don't know, it's, I, I just want to, don't even think about it, it's terrifying. No, it's not. When we die as Christians, we go to be with Jesus. Think about the thief that died on the cross. Remember what Jesus told to him that on the, the moment before he died, today you'll be with me in paradise. You don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear plague or famine or war. We have a, a future ahead, and it's bright. It'll be with our God. There's another passage that I, I am fond of and go back to often, and it brings me encouragement, but it gives me perspective. So much to ponder. 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. What, what, what happens when we die? Okay, so we go to be with God. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. So we, we go to be with God, and then what? Like, what, what's, what's, the, <laughs> what's the future in heaven? If, if there's no time in heaven, what does that mean? Uh, is there time? All those questions come to mind. But So I'm, I'm in a soul, a, a spirit with God, and then what? Uh, in the first century, the uh, believers that Paul wrote to, they, they had people, you know, they thought Jesus might come back quickly, and they were shocked when people started to die. What happens to them? And what's going on with our dead? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. But you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so a euphemism for death is sleep in this passage. You don't need to grieve as others do who have no hope. Because you're going to be with Jesus, right? And your dead in Christ are going to be with Jesus. For, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so we get into the resurrection here. Jesus died and he rose again. For Jesus died and rose again, the, the resurrection, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What do you mean, bring with him? Well, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to the earth. Jesus is coming back to reign. Jesus is coming back to rule. This world is not a random contingency. It's not ruled by the fates. God is going to come back. He's going to bring his kingdom to the earth. And when he comes, what does it say? Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, he's going to bring with them. Well, what do you mean by that? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. I imagine it being so loud and so incredibly full of light and so many things happening. 
a stunning, startling moment. And the dead in Christ will rise first. What? He's talking about resurrection. He's talking about just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, when he comes back, when he comes back to the earth, he's going to bring the dead. And when they come with him, when he returns, resurrection of the saints. Uh, maybe you've never heard that put that way before. Usually this passage is talking, in, in many contexts, people talk about it as the rapture. Yes, it is a snatching up. Those who are in the graves arise. They meet Jesus in the air. Those who are alive, if we're alive, if Jesus comes back next week, we who are alive will be snatched up in a twinkling in the eye, says 1 Corinthians 15. Man, it'll be just like that. We'll be transformed, resurrected, glorified bodies, just as Jesus. The, the picture there, as Jesus died and rose again, we too who have died or who are alive when he comes back, we will rise again too as well, resurrected. It's going to be awesome when Jesus Christ comes back. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As Jesus comes back to the earth, we meet him kind of as an entourage, a holy entourage. We rise and we come to the earth and the kingdom of God is present. He's, he's vanquished all evil. He's destroyed all the wicked. The, the picture we see in Revelation is 19, chapter 19. We'll get there one day as we preach through this book. Jesus comes back in Revelation 20, the resurrection the first resurrection at the beginning of the millennium. The second resurrection at the end of the millennium is the judgment of the wicked. They will be raised too. But what, what an incredible day when Jesus Christ comes back, made alive in Him forever and ever, to be with Him in the world to come. So the, the dead, man, they, they come back. We, we don't just go living as souls in heaven God always has meant us to be embodied people. He's made us as embodied people. And we'll always be one day when he comes back embodied with him, not only through the millennium, but then after that, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God upon the earth. What, what, what a vision for you and I. But the souls in heaven, the people in heaven, even though they're safe, even though they're waiting, they, they, I, don't, I don't know how much revelation they receive once they get to heaven, how much they understand, how much they see, how much they get. But we, we, we see as they are waiting, they have a question. A question that's been asked through the centuries by all peoples of the earth. Uh, I, I read a story recently about a, uh, a guy in Pakistan uh, many people around the earth, uh, around the world, are, are very poor, live hand to mouth. And this guy in Pakistan, his wife got sick and she needed an emergency surgery. They didn't have any money, but there's money lenders in his village that uh, I will help you get the surgery, but you owe us. And it turns out they're predatory, they, they have exorbitant interest rates. And so they, what they do is once they lend money to people, they, they really become slaves for the rest of their life. And so, and the way they do that is through the interest, like they try to pay it back, but they can never pay it back. So they go to work as, he went to work as a, as a slave, a servant in a, in a brick making factory. And now his, his son is serving in that same brick making factory because they still owe the same debt that they can never pay off. 
And those kind of things around the earth, again and again, we see peoples that have been treated unjustly. The weak get beat up, the poor get ripped off. You know, the evils are done. And even, even today we see so many places around the world where these people, the civilians, are getting slaughtered. By, you know, there's, right now there's uh, estimated 110 active armed conflicts on the earth. And, you know, greedy people, greedy powerful politicians, people are trying to conquest and take charge and, and rule over people. And, and oftentimes the injustices there, the evils that take place are, are just mind-boggling. And it goes on and on and on. And so these people who have been killed for their faith... Uh, my, my understanding of this, if you want to know how I'm looking at this, I, I see this, and maybe you guessed it from, from what I read in First Thessalonians 4. My understanding of this is that these are Christians. Christians that enter the tribulation. Christians that go through the tribulation. Christians that are slaughtered because of their faithfulness to Jesus. My personal view, if you want to, you want to put a title on me. Uh, and, and again, as we talked about last week, we have to be very humble as we look at the end times. You know, our, our, our experience in the, with the, the church and the first century and the prophecy of, of the Old Testament, uh, when, when Jesus' uh, prophecies about His coming and His being the Savior, um, how many people in the first century understood that Jesus was going to go to the cross? How many, how many people reading prophecy in the first century got it right that Jesus would become the Messiah, but He came to die? I'd say probably zero got it right. And so for me, trying to interpret prophecy, uh, in my simple mind, I have to be very humble and very gracious of other views because I'm still learning. And so you ask me, what's your view right now, Jaron, about how things are going to go? I'd say I'm still a learner and I'm open to change, but I believe that the, that the rapture happens after the tribulation. You, you might call me a post-tribulationalist, post a post-trib premillennialist. I still think Jesus is going to come back uh, before the millennial kingdom comes. Others might be called a pre-trib, uh, before the tribulation, the rapture happens, the church goes up to heaven, and then these believers that are killed, they are the ones who are, uh, maybe they, they've con converted to Christ after the church is gone. They read a Bible somewhere that someone left on a table, and they came to Christ, and uh, they were saved. But I, I would call myself a post-trib premillennialist. I believe we're going to go through the tribulation. I believe the church, if we're alive, God is, we're not, going to, we're not appointed for wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, but we are going to go through trouble and suffering. We're not going to experience wrath, but there's going to be evil people that are still going to try to kill us because we follow Jesus. So here's, here's a, a view of that, you know, the, this, 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 the, the evil that's upon us, the wickedness upon us, the, the things that we're experiencing now. What we're seeing in, in chapter 6 is maybe of an intensification of conflicts on the earth, wars upon the earth, trouble upon the earth, wickedness and, and, and vindictiveness upon the earth, and people are dying. And so these souls, these, these people, they, they have a question in verse 10, and this is the center of the fifth seal. It was important for God to give uh, John this vision, this, this picture of the fifth seal, because he, he knows every person upon the face of the earth asks, what are you going to do about evil? What are you going to do about those who hurt me? Are, is there going to be justice upon them or not? They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, and that's an important interpretation, sovereign Lord, the one who's in control, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. 
As you continue to study the book of Revelation, whenever you see the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, says the ESV, that's a sign for those who are unchristian, not un unredeemed, the lost. And so these Christians, whether they be Jewish Christian, Jewish people have come, become Christians, or the church that's going through the tribulation, they are, have been killed by the earth dwellers. They have been slaughtered, slayed by the earth dwellers. And so they have this, this serious question. What are you going to do, God? What, what are you going to do? You know, here you, we're safe. You know, we've been redeemed. We're, we're with you. But are you going to bring justice upon the earth? But, but notice the question is not if. They, 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 they know God's character and they know God's promises and they know God's word. It says, how long? How long before you bring justice? How long before you bring justice upon the earth? It's a mighty, mighty question. And God answers that in verse 11, subtly, and maybe not explicitly, but subtly. Then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There's a sense where, in, in my understanding of Revelation, it is in, incorporating all the martyrs from the first century on, but then at the end, a great tribulation comes, and these are specifically focusing on the tribulation martyrs who die right before the end, and they're asking the question, but it could be the whole church, the whole church history of all the martyrs who have come to Christ after they've been killed. And, and so it's a, it's a deep question, it's a, it's a remarkable question, uh, some would say, is this kind of an uh, unchristian question, though? I mean, shouldn't we just be, you know, just uh, always praying for people and, and forgiving people? And uh, uh, why are they asking for vengeance? It, it seems that that's a strange thing to say. When are you going to avenge our blood? Well, and this goes back to the Old Testament. And maybe you've read through the book of Psalms, or maybe you regularly read through the book of Psalms. There are a group of Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms. And some of the, the verbiage that's used in some of these songs is, is rather incredible. Oh God, when are you going to destroy them? Oh God, when are you going to take vengeance? When are you going to, when are you going to come and, and, and kill all my enemies? It's, it's harsh language in these imprecatory psalms. And they're hard to read sometimes. But the, the question is, what's their motive? What's their heart? Are, are they just lusting for vengeance, those who have been forgiven? That, that would be strange. Are they just like, oh, bloodthirsty vengeance? Yeah, they, they, they stole my inheritance. Kill them, God. They, they, they hurt my daughter. Kill them, God. You know, these kind of things. Just, that's, not, that's not the picture we get from Psalms, and that's not the vision of the New Testament either. The motive is, is that God, if he doesn't deal with sin, what does that say about him? Their, their motives are a heart for God's reputation. The motives of asking these questions are, God, God, you say you're just, you say you're holy. Are you going to prove it? Because if you don't bring justice, what, what's the world going to say? What are, the, what, what are, your, what are your enemies going to say? They're going to say, no, he's not just, he's unjust. He doesn't care about your sufferings. He doesn't care about wickedness or evil. That would, that's what the enemies might say. So they pray like, God, please come and show who you are. Show that you are a God of holiness and justice. Uh, there, there, there's many ways to describe. I, I think I need to jump right now to 
a, a, a verse, a section, maybe to, to bring that a little bit closer, because I know there's, there's kids hearing this, and, and uh, maybe they need some more explanation about what it means to be a Christian who's been wronged. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Um, verse 17. Uh, how do we respond to evil? Uh, we're, the big question is, how does God respond to evil? And in, in Revelation 6, uh, God is going to bring justice. How long, Lord, until you bring vengeance? How long before you deal with our, those who have killed us? And he says, just a little while longer. But for us, how do we respond to evil being done against us? Maybe, maybe there's someone in this room even who's hurt you. Or may, maybe there's someone in this community that has done you wrong or done your family wrong. How, how do you respond to evil? It says in verse 17, repay no one for evil for evil. Now you watch a Hollywood movie, you watch some of the, 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 the media, <laughs> vengeance is everywhere. You hurt me, I hurt you. That's the, the law of the land, so to speak, in, in terms of movies or some literature we write, but not us as Christians. We do not repay evil for evil. It goes on from there, and it says, But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So instead of uh, taking vengeance, we seek to make peace with our neighbors who have hurt us. And this leads into the whole discussion of forgiving our enemies, forgiving those who have done wrong because Jesus has forgiven us when we sinned against him. If he's forgiven us for the wrongs we've done against him, how can we not forgive those and make peace with those who've done evil against us? Uh, but, but more than that, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, for us, uh, and so we can turn over our, our desire for vengeance, the people that lied about us, the people that have backstabbed us, the people that have ripped us off, the people that have um, slandered us, the people that have stolen from us, the people who have murdered our loved ones. We turn that over to God. Lord, I turn so-and-so over to you. But then as a Christian, we also pray, Lord, the evil is great. I pray that they would pay for their sins. But I also ask that they would come to know you, that you would forgive them of their sins. Christians are called to respond to others in the hurt we've been given, the pains we've suffered by uh, living as Jesus would if he were in our shoes, seeking to redeem and rescue and even save those who have hurt us. It's amazing what love does. It's amazing what the gospel is about. It's amazing what we're called to be as Christians, how we're called to live. But to the contrary, it says in verse 20, uh, after you turn things over to God, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Like he's expecting you to judge him. He's expecting you to hate him. She's expecting you that you're going to try to destroy her. But if you serve her in love... If you bless her, if you take care of her, if you minister to him and you give when you've been taken from, it's like they're, they're so ashamed, they're so in, in awe of that, that they might repent. And they might ask for you to forgive them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, amazing. And so so the, what's happening in, in chapter 6 is this, the, those who have been killed, who have been murdered, 
whose blood had been shed, they asked for God to bring his justice. And God says, just a little while longer, there's a, there's a, there's a number of martyrs in God's mind, apparently. There, there's, a, there's a fullness of the elect who come into the kingdom. There's a fullness of all those, you know, God knows the day of your death. He, before any of you lived a day, any of us lived a day, every one of our days was written in his book, says Psalm 139. And so apparently he knows every, everybody who's still yet to die for Jesus. Until the fullness, the full number comes in, you wait. Uh, so, so the implication here says, be patient. And uh, have you noticed that God is very patient with sinners? I've noticed it because I've sinned probably every day of my life and I'm still alive. If he was, was going to treat me as I deserved, I would have been dead when I was two years old. I would have been dead as a six-month-old. Stinking little sinner, Jerron. But he's patient. God doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. And so his patience is amazing. He, his patience lasts 1,000 years. His patience lasts 2,000 years. His patience lasts 4,000 years. And so God is patient, and so he's saying, just a little while longer, just wait and rest. Trust in me. But then there's a quick answer in verse 12. Uh, it, God's patience, his perspective from heaven's throne, it seems like it's just right away that he answers the prayer. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. Uh, it goes on the cosmic signs. Suddenly, when the six seals open, as history moves on, um, G Jesus put it this way in, in a, very, a very similar passage. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. The, the cosmic signs of his return. In verse 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and so in the Olivet Discourse, in the, it, it's in Mark and Luke and Matthew, a little bit different flow in their text, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the, the birth pains, uh, as you were, the, through, the, through the first 2,000 years since Jesus has, has gone into heaven, and maybe it, it, speaking of the, the in, intensity of the final great tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. He's saying the same thing as what's said in Revelation. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Isn't that incredible? Just a little while longer, he says in Revelation 6, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. So when Jesus comes back after the tribulation, the rapture happens. Resurrection happens. The saints are gathered by the angels, and we're with God forever. Judgment and justice will be done. God's response, it's multifaceted. But when he opened a sixth seal back in Revelation 6... And the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 24, the full moon became like the blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit, shaken by a gale. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. There's a sevenfold 
Again, the number seven, the symbolism of seven through the book of Revelation, we hit it again and again and again. And so we have this sevenfold cosmic sign. And, the, and the, the one there that's most dramatic to me is the sky being, you know, the scroll. He's talking about a scroll rolled up. Maybe the scroll breaks in half. And, and what happens if you have a rolled up piece of paper? It just it, it rolls up again in its original shape. The sky being dismissed. The sky vanishing. The heavens, as, first, as Second Peter says, chapter 3, everything is dissolved by God's power. Uh, imagine mountains and islands running away. Now, again, John is seeing these pictures. How is it, it going to play out at the end of time? How do mountain, ask me the question, how do mountains and islands run away? I don't know. This is what he sees. But behind what he sees is incredible. The end of the world, the end of the earth, the end of existence as we know it. Judgment falls. And it's a perfect, complete, the sevenfold judgment that falls on the sixth seal. It, we, we're brought up to the end of time. We're br brought up to the end of history. His complete, perfect justice is being done as all the evil in the world is destroyed. Now again, as we move through the book of Revelation, my understanding is, is that the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls, and so it's a very condensed, the, the next section we get into, starting with chapter 8, it's a very tight, condensed, packed unit of God's wrath being poured upon the earth. How does God reveal, how does God respond to evil? He will judge it. He will destroy it. There will be no, no one who gets away with murder. There will be no one who gets away with evil. There will be no one that gets away with violating you. There will be no one who gets away from hurting your kids. There will be no one that, that gets scot-free from the evils they've done. God will judge all sin. There'll be, every last sin will be accounted for because this is God's world and He is holy. His wrath, His holy hatred of sin will be poured out on all who sin. The uh, second part of the second seal, the, se the sixth seal. Notice uh, the people that are traditionally felt, uh, feel secure in the world, feel safe in the world, feel like they have the world by the tail. A sevenfold announcement of judgment against the strong and the powerful of the world, those who often take advantage of the weak and the poor. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, Slave, the sixth one, and the free, seventh one, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. You can write down Isaiah chapter 2 as an illusion because even back then, people were trying to hide themselves from the wrath of God. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come and who can stand? So we, we see this, these cosmic signs, a cosmic shaking at the end. We're brought up to the end in the sixth seal. And then what happens is people finally realize they've rebelled against God. They've hated God. They've rejected everything that God said. They try to hide. And, and even beyond trying to hide, they, they, they pray for death to come. Because they do not want to face the wrath of the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, quite a stunning picture. Jesus, the Lamb who is slain for the sins of the world... In another sense, he's the one, the lamb, who is wrathful, pouring out the justice of God upon all the evil and wickedness 
of the earth. The question in verse 17 that's brought up in John's vision that he remembers, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who thinks they will avoid being punished for their sins? Who thinks they will be somehow get, get away from their selfishness and their wickedness? Who thinks that they're going to stand before God and say, and get a free pass? And that raises a great question, doesn't it? How does God respond to evil. And that's where we talk about the gospel. One of the ways that God will respond is to judge sin. But another way that God has responded is by sending Jesus, his son, to die for sinners. It's an incredible, incredible, amazing, astounding truth that God is going to be just and he's going to judge every sin, but that God has provided the one who can save you. And that name is Jesus Christ. Uh, many scriptures to ponder, and uh, Sean, this is not on your outline, because I, I was going through so many this morning that I wanted to talk about. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Think about what Jesus has done. The wrath of the Lamb, there'll be judgment upon the earth one day, but before that comes, because God does not want anyone to perish... For their sins, he made a way so that every one of us could be saved from our sins. If you are unredeemed, if you're unsaved, if you're still unforgiven, if you're still lost, God has made a way for you to not be judged for your wickedness. Praise God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin. Even though Jesus knew no sin, he was sinless. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Are you getting what he's saying there? Jesus took your sins upon himself at the cross. He died for every one of your sins. I don't, I, if I tried to count my sins, what would it be? 300,000? 3 million? That's the beauty. How does God respond to evil in, in, in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? He responded to evil by sending Jesus to die for sinners like me. And when Jesus went to that cross, my 300,000 sins, my 3 million sins, my 30 million sins, he took them all upon him. He became my sin bearer and he was slaughtered in my place. He took the punishment I deserved. He became the animal slayed with his throat slit for me. And all my sins were paid for by Jesus Christ. All of your sins, when you trusted in Jesus, were paid for by Jesus Christ. How, how, how did he respond? He saw Jerron, he saw you as someone who des deserves wrath because of your sins. But he said, I, I don't want them to die. I don't want them to be separated from me forever. I don't want them to go to hell. And so Jesus came and he said, I will take all of their sins upon me. And the wrath of God was poured upon him. The great exchange was the wrath of God poured upon him. But when we trust in him, the righteousness of God given to us. We are declared righteous in his sight by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made holy in his sight by faith in Jesus Christ. 
the, uh, the, 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 the message of this just goes on and on and on. Just another, from another perspective, listen to this scripture. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. How does God respond to my evil and your evil? Jesus died for us. And you have to... If you want to be saved from your sins, you want to be rescued from your sins, you want to be declared righteous, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to receive Jesus. You have to trust in him. Not just say, oh, that's a cool story. I, I, I believe that's right, that Jesus died on the cross. No, you have to depend on Jesus to save you. And so even today, I hope you've been convicted that you are in need of a Savior. I hope you've been convicted through Pete's uh, uh, talking about the Lord's Supper through what Luke said, through some of the lyrics and some of the things he said about salvation. I hope you realize that in and of yourself, you will not be saved. You will not be entered into heaven as you are. You need forgiven. And Jesus has provided that, but you have to receive it. You have to believe in his name for life. Please, even today, if you are lost, if you're unforgiven... Turn to Jesus, trust in him right now, and you will be saved. God will respond to your evil with grace, with forgiveness, with mercy. May it be so. God will respond to all evil with justice. But you can have your sins forgiven justly by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe and receive and be saved. And so we're brought to chapter 7 with this amazing account of the seals being opened. And next week we look at chapter 7 in, in the interlude, a pause from the opening of the seals. And we see a multitude of peoples worshiping. Let's get into that next week. Let's leave our day here as worshipers. Please stand in the Lord's presence. Lord, thank you for responding to, uh, to the evil of this world by, by coming and being a redeemer, for purchasing us from our slavery to sin, from reconciling us from that foreign land of, of sinful people, reconciling us back to God by your grace. Thank you for justifying us, God, through what Jesus did on the cross, declaring us righteous not because of what we did, but because of what you did, Jesus. Thank you for becoming sin for us so, and paying our debt so we wouldn't have to. So we worship you today, Lord. And Lord, we, uh, we ask as we move into history and the time, uh, Lord, we don't know when you're coming back. We pray that it would be soon. But Lord, give us the grace, give us the power as a church, uh, give us the, the heart as a church to take that good news to the world, take that good news to those around us who haven't heard about how they can be forgiven. Let us uh, have Jesus Christ and his salvation on our lips with others this week. Lord, but send us out as, as your servants uh, in, in love and mercy and grace. And may you get exalted through it all. We worship you, Lord. 
that uh, you're not going to let any evil uh, go away freely. You're going to judge it all, but we're thankful, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be forgiven. And we, we, we go out here today praising you for it. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who saves, a God who is just, a God who is holy, but a God who loves and a God who saves. We worship you. Uh, we love you, Lord, and please take us now and, and lead us out into your glory. Uh, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.